Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organisational and human sides of the major issues facing public value organisations. In the current COVID-19 crisis, our series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organisations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia's response and recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, www.cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, I'm Tom Craven. Today is January 25th, 2021, and I'm delighted to report that 2020 is in fact over. Uh, For many of us, the end of the year and a holiday break couldn't come soon enough. Of course, the new year brings new hope and opportunity, but it does not remove the challenges that 2020 brought us. The good news is, is that Australia continues to maintain very low levels of COVID-19. There have been just two deaths from COVID-19 reported since October. Restrictions have eased across all parts of the country. The bad news is, is that the threat of COVID-19 very much remains with us. Outbreaks from international quarantine have happened in all states, including most recently New South Wales and Queensland, leading to localised lockdowns and border closures. And of course, the transmission of the virus is worse than ever for our cousins in other parts of the world. The United States and the United Kingdom in particular are experiencing rates of death and hospitalisation beyond even the heights of the first wave. All this has meant that the return to a post-COVID normal, quote-unquote, has slowed somewhat. Victoria, for example, has slowed the return of office workers to city offices. Remote and flexible working and ongoing measures to prevent the spread of the disease will be part of Australian life for some time now. Which makes now a great time to reflect on what the pandemic has meant for the way we work. Today, we're going to be discussing what we've learnt from the great disruption to our ways of working that the pandemic has been, and for what it might mean for the future of flexible working and for more diverse and inclusive workplaces. Our guest today is Gemma Saunders. Gemma is the founder of Workplace Edit, a consulting and coaching practice focused on workplace practices, systems, and behaviours. Gemma comes with two decades of experience in recruitment, diversity and inclusion, organisational and workforce development. And Gemma is also a board member of Minus 18, a leading LGBTQ plus charity fighting homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, and interphobia, and creating safe spaces to support LGBTQ young people. Gemma, thanks for being a part of this conversation. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. Hey, can I start with just telling us where you're speaking from this morning? What's your remote working setup been during this period and, and how have you found it? Thank you. Yes, I'm coming to you from um, Wadawurrung land, which is in between Melbourne and Geelong. And I would like to start just by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that I'm broadcasting from today and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this was and always will be the land of the First Nations people here in Australia. So, yeah, I live here with my wife and we've got two kids and two dogs. And yeah, been a very much a roller coaster of ups and downs over the last, what is it, 10 months of working from home. We've both been working from home. We both have office based, I guess, roles. So sharing the space with one another as not only partners, but also kind of pseudo work colleagues has been quite interesting. <laughs> I'm sure there's many with similar experiences. And yeah, just kind of surrendering to the fact that I can't control when the doorbell rings and when the dogs bark. So having to, I guess, get over that awkward moment in zoom calls and workshops where I start to apologize and apologize and then think you know what we're all human this is happening to other people and just surrender to the things that I can't control during this this interesting time 
So yeah, that's me. Well, I'm slightly hoping that our listeners will get a quick taste of the doorbell and the dogs barking at some stage during this recording. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. They're very different barks. I've got a spoodle and a greyhound, so you'll notice the difference in the uh, the high pitched yap and the and the uh, the strong bark from the greyhound. Well, that's a pretty good lead into getting us going. Obviously, the COVID nineteen pandemic has meant new ways of working for just about everyone, utilising some of the ways we do flexible working, working from home, working online, those sorts of things. But when we spoke before this interview, you were keen to stress that we've been experiencing what you would call remote working and, and very much not flexible working. I wonder if a good way to start our conversation is for you to tell us what you mean by that and why that's a really important distinction for people at the moment. Yeah, I think it is a very important distinction because you know I do hear conversations quite regularly of people praising this as the big flexible working breakthrough or I see headlines talking about how this is the, the big game changer for flexible work. And I think it's important to recognise a few things. The first being that we've been working remotely, or a number of us have been working remotely during a pandemic, during a crisis. And so the elements of choice and control within our day-to-day life schedules are not as, I guess, normal as a typical flexible working day. So I think it's important to call out that we've been working at home or remotely during a pandemic. And, you know, schooling has been off for many of us. We've been remote schooling. Some of our daycares and support structures have not been open to us in terms of preschool childcare as well. And so that isn't a true work from home approach if we're outside of a COVID situation. So I think that's the first thing. I think it's also important to acknowledge that while some of us in office-based and corporate roles have been working from home, There are a number of workforces within our community who have had a largely unchanged way of working. So if you think about nurses, uh, healthcare professionals, we think about retail and um, home care people, you know, these, these roles have been largely unchanged and flexible working and remote working have really been off the cards for them. So I think when we talk about this, we can definitely see it as a catalyst and an opportunity for how we might want to build more flexible ways of working in the future. But I think we have to acknowledge first that this has been remote working through a pandemic and we need to take that as the experiment that it was. And the second thing is we have to consider all of the workforces that we have in Australia and not just over-indexed on the corporate and head office type roles, which typically get the limelight anyway. Mm. I think as soon as you said, just a couple of those examples of having children at home or actually not not being able to leave the house, that it's very clear that that's not a choice environment. It's not a flexible environment. It's actually quite quite the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think that that's where we need to pay attention moving forward is that some people will have had some wonderful experiences of working from home and and this is all they want moving forward. They may have had, of course, testing times, whether it be their mental health or challenges around childcare support. But some people have largely had great home offices to work from, excellent Wi-Fi, perhaps, you know, another adult in the house that can supervise children and homeschool. And their experience is going to be vastly different to someone who has, you know, is the sole income earner of the family 
has three to four children to look after, perhaps has an elderly family member living with them who is sick or needs care. And so I think what's going to be important moving forward is to understand this is where equity versus equality starts to come in. So starting to think about how do we give employees really what they need versus giving everyone the same thing. So by saying, you know, we're all going to have Fridays off moving forward and no meetings, um, that might not work for an employee who has a different situation to another. So I think that's where this consideration of how do we give people what they need in a fair and equitable way versus giving everyone exactly the same offering. Mm, that's such a good point. Actually, we'll come back to that in a second, but I, I was going to ask you, the other probably distinguishing feature of this experience of working remotely compared to a more a more flexible working approach is how little time we had to prepare for it, I suppose. We all jumped yes. up, grabbed what we could, set up our home office as quickly as we can. I wonder, just with your expertise and experience, just tell us a little bit about all the other things that would normally come along with, with a flexible working approach and, and how much more change is required to make it work for people than just getting access to your emails and Wi-Fi on a, on a laptop. Yeah, it's such a good point. So the way that we think about flexible working when we are more proactive is we start to think about, first of all, what is our business strategy and how do we think about a flexible way of working that supports and enables that business strategy? So that would be always the first place to start when thinking about flexible working. I think we've gone past or at least more mature organisations have gone past this belief that flexible working is purely just an employee perk or an employee benefit. Of course, it is that and it can be leveraged as a talent acquisition and retention tool. So I think that we need to acknowledge it can be that, but it can also be way more than that. And we've seen through recent months that the organisations who had quite mature models around flexible working what they were able to do was to really adapt their workforce quite rapidly in response to this. And so they didn't experience the lag that some organizations did in you know, fumbling and trying to figure out, oh gosh, what do we do now? And, and you know, realizing that their VPN can't hold the amount of users that it needs to. You know, these organizations that were more mature, they actually experimented with this years ago. So they tested all of those, that infrastructure and the load and the IT and the technology. They they sort of have policies and practices. They trained and coached their HR and business leaders on how to lead hybrid teams, flexible teams. And so what we were able to see was that the lag wasn't there. So it really can be a strong business enabler. So I think that's the first thing is looking at what is your organizational or business strategy and thinking about how does flexibility enable that and thinking about flexibility more than just where you work. So we've been talking a lot about flexibility being place, working from home, working remotely, working from an office and the place really does get a lot of the spotlight. I would really encourage people to think about flexible working in terms of where you work, when you work and how you work. Because those are the three elements that do allow you to think more broadly, particularly when you have workforces that the place is quite fixed. You know, I work with people who have manufacturing operations and physical healthcare workforces. And so the place of work really isn't that flexible for their employees. So rather than overlook that and say, well, we can't work flexibly, we really encourage them to think about, well, how can you look at when people work, not only in a day, but also over the course of a week, a month and a year? Can you offer, you know, nine months contracts, 
prorated over 12 months so that people can take three months off. I mean, I, I'm a parent, you're a parent. We have to somehow fit in 12 weeks of school holidays into four weeks of annual leave. So really try to get creative around the when people work, not only on a day-to-day basis, but also over the course of the year. And you'll start to really unlock some opportunities in terms of how you might look at your flow of business activity over a 12-month period and where you have the highs and lows but also what your employees want and need and allow that flexibility to service both the employee experience and also the business needs as well. Mm. I think I was fortunate to work for one of those organizations that that did come in already having experimented. But to be honest, a lot over the the year leading up to it, so not not for many years, but the year leading up to it. And I mean, consulting work, you're often quite remote and you're working on client sites or at home, you're often doing a lot of work on on a laptop, but we often would physically come together for team meetings. And we often found the experience that someone, maybe the only commitment they had in a day at the office was the team meeting, but they had to travel in there, get, get there on a certain time, or all the inefficiency of turning up at a team meeting. But the ability of, of experimenting and having really good remote systems all of a sudden just made people realize, gee, the only reason I was going to come in was to attend that meeting. So rather than not mm. meeting it, or rather than coming all the way in just for that one thing, the amount of people that started coming in virtually and then the opportunities that come from meeting virtually, the efficiency of it, those sorts of things. We were able to realize those things even before COVID hit. And then mm. it's been unbelievably important in terms of maintaining connection and, and teaming when we've been so remote. So really fortunate that we'd experimented so much before this hit and we're, we're ready to, to do those things well. You, you've hit on a, a little um, sort of trend that I'm seeing there when you were speaking, Tom, which is around this idea of empowering employees to be really thoughtful around the purpose of the work that they're doing and how they choose the right work setting and the right time of work, when they work, where they work and how they work based on the outcomes they have to deliver and what makes sense in a really pragmatic way. And I I think that, you know, thinking about what is your day ahead, what is your week ahead and how do you make informed choices around how you and your team going to get the best outcomes for one another and for your customers or clients. I think that's really the mantra moving forward. And I think that we just had a default before that you go into the office and the office is work, whereas work is really, you know, it's the thing you do, not necessarily the place that you go to. And so I think that's going to be a bit of a mindset shift moving forward is how do we empower people to really understand a what they're responsible for delivering so what are the outcomes what does good look like what does success look like and really giving them some choice in where how and when they show up and deliver those outcomes so i think that definitely is is a trend moving forward and i've certainly seen that as a conversation even a a question i ask during focus groups is what is the purpose of the office moving forward what role will the office play let's not just assume office becomes work and work is the place we go to but let's think about what is the deliberate role of the office and what is the purpose of that for all of us to achieve great outcomes moving forward oh that's that's so well said and i think i might well we'll come to the way forward in a second but i think that's a really helpful sort of framework for people going forward because we, we often also get into that trap of you know one or the other black or white are you are you working from home are you working in the office that lens of purpose I think I think that's great that, that gives you a much more nuanced approach to how you think about the way we do work and, and different parts of your work life that could be done flexibly that's that's really helpful and it sounds easy when I say it but I will also acknowledge that it what it does require if you do take that mantra moving forward is really deliberate team-based conversations because it's all well and good I I say you know well I've got this report to deliver and I've got this outcome to work on so I'm gonna work 
at this time in these places and in this way. But if I have to collaborate with you, Tom, and you want to work completely differently, then that's going to require us talking about maybe where's that common common ground where we need to be physically together to deliver something. And that's going to require compromise and communication. So there are some skills involved. And I think definitely more team-based conversations rather than you know a top-down organization telling employees what to do. It's going to be more providing the frameworks and the principles for employees to talk with one another and to figure that out. Let's shift to talking about the, well, a bit more about the experience of during the pandemic, notwithstanding it being a very much imperfect experiment. It has been an experiment of sorts. I'd be interested in your thoughts on what we have learned from the the lockdown working, from remote working that we could bring forward into flexible work. Look, I think that there's there's learnings on both an individual level and an organisational level. I think at an organisational level, one of the the lessons that I'm seeing emerge or this sort of aha moment is that organizations are feeling like this could be a really good business leader, right? So, you know, flexible working can actually enable us to tackle some of our business imperatives, you know, which we're looking at global expansion or we're looking at entering new markets, then potentially having staff working overseas at different times is, is actually advantageous to us. So I'm seeing them view this more as a, business lever rather than an employee benefit that sort of we have to do to keep up with our talent competitors. So I think that's been a real eye-opener and something that is important to carry forward. I think on an individual level, particularly for leaders, and when I say leaders, I mean anyone who leads people or leads processes. I think that this idea of adaptability is really coming through. So I was speaking with a leader in a training workshop that I run recently, and he was very honest and said he was, you know, dreading it. He just thought, I've always led for, you know, for decades, I've led in this way where people come into work and I go into work and I physically lead them. And overnight, I I had to lead people in a very, very different way. And he had surprised himself at how much he could grow and learn and change during that period. And, you know, he he realised that when he said it wasn't possible, it actually was possible. So there was almost admitting that, you know, he wasn't perfect in the first place. And, you know, this was a lesson for him as well. So I think adaptability as a leadership skill is something that's come into the forefront I think the question becomes how do leaders deploy this adaptability skill set when it's more proactive and self-driven rather than forced upon them because we have a pandemic on our hands, right? So you have to adapt because you need to, and that's one thing, but how do they take that skill set that has been an observable skill set over the last 10, 10 months and translate that to other business opportunities and challenges and really try and think about what was that skill set and mindset what was my toolkit and how do I use that for other challenges that we're facing? That is such a positive way to think about it too, I think. Just knowing that you have that capacity to do something that you would previously have thought of as impossible. Like, I mean, maybe that's all it is that we learn that from this situation, but surely that would have all of us now pause a little bit when we say this can't be done or that, that this is impossible. The amount of impossible things that have been done over the past nine months should surely give us, I mean, confidence to, to try those things. Yeah, so hopefully it's, you know, it's growth mindset, it's unlocking the creativity and the innovation that we all talk about in business. Um, Now we've seen an adaptability skill set in action. So how do we really recognize that and deploy it in different ways? And I think if that is the one thing that we take forward, it will be a positive thing. I, I guess the third thing in terms of the experiment and what have we learned is that it can be 
kind of an inclusive workplace equaliser. And what I mean by that is that, I mean, let's face it, there are elements of the modern workplace that are still based on how we used to live in the 50s. And there are some assumptions that sit within our policies and our practices, you know, whether it's our dress codes or our parental leave policies, the ways in which we work that um, we haven't really questioned for decades. And so I think now it's a time for us to challenge what needs to stay and what needs to be redesigned. Um, so just an example of what I mean by that, when we think about parents and carers, there was some research done by Circle In, who were a parents and carers engagement platform. And they ran a survey around April, May time last year, and 97% of people responded to that survey, which was around flexible ways of working. And they said that they wanted to continue with a flexible work arrangement post-COVID, whenever that might be. And I think the reason that's important is that their audience is parents and carers, and that flexibility really is important for that group. But one thing that stood out to me in that survey was also that 52% of dads who responded to the survey also wanted to continue to play a more active role in the home and take on additional parenting responsibilities moving forward. So comparing their pre-COVID experience with their COVID, I guess, remote working experience was that they really felt that they wanted to take on more and do more. And I think that particularly if you look at that with an Australian lens, we know that only 5% of paid parental leave is taken up by men in Australia which is one of the lowest OECD countries in terms of male participation in parental leave. But we have this group of dads saying that they want to play a more active role. So the question or the challenge that is presented to workplaces, I believe, is how do we explore that further and how do we support men to take a more active role in parenting and caring through flexible working, through parental leave, policy redesign, and because I think that that is a real opportunity for gender equality more broadly. So, you know, that that is something that I think is an opportunity moving forward. And I know you're a dad. I mean, what has been, I'll throw it back to you. I know I'm not the leader of this podcast, but what has been your experience, Tom? And have you heard things from colleagues and your social circles from other dads about how they've experienced this? Yeah, well, it links a little bit to what you said before about those who had already been working flexibly or part-time, already had taken their share of the caring duties for kids. Those who were already doing that certainly came into it much better equipped and, and more ready and more used to those things. I, I reckon that everyone's experience is different, and I wonder if this is one where it could really go either way. So there's certainly that gap between father's stated intention to spend more time caring for their children and what they actually do I think that's one of the big pickles that a lot of us are wrestling with. Animal Annabelle Crab has written some great material wrestling and why is this dissidence? Why does it exist? For some fathers, I think the hopefully the COVID nineteen experience provides them a, a positive example of what can be. And at least from my experience, once once you experience positive, flexible working that that works for you both as a parent and a worker, you'll never go back to a previous nine to five, five day a week model. You just won't. You you can't even imagine why you ever did. So for those dads who've had that experience, I think there's a real opportunity there. They they won't be able to go back to um, the former model because once once they experience just how good it is for you and for your partner, you wouldn't go back. My fear is there'll be another group of dads though who have come in to this remote setting unprepared, possibly poorly supported, already stressed by a very stressful environment that we're all in. And we'll think of this as being, well, if this is what flexible working's like, it's not going to work. And, and there's a risk it reinforces that view of that this isn't possible for me. So I guess we'll see. But 
my fear is it could go either way. Yeah, I think that's a really insightful point. And I think the role of organisations in acknowledging those kind of groups of people who've experienced it very differently is to, first of all, acknowledge that people will have experienced it very differently based on their personal situation, what they've experienced um, with flexible working prior to COVID um, and how they've experienced it during this last 10 to 11 months. And so I think now is the opportunity for workplaces to engage with their employees and understand what does support look like moving forward for employees. So whether you've had a great time, what was it that made it great? What were the factors? If you didn't have a, a great time, what were the factors that really derailed the experience for you? What can we do about those? And what would support look like moving forward if we were to repaint a picture of a good working from home experience for you? What would that look like? And for some people, it would be as simple as you know, my children would be at school not being homeschooled. And and for others, it might be more complex or layered than that. So take the time, engage, understand what some of those barriers have been and and const. And I think this is the thing moving forward. This isn't a one-off survey that that we do and we just send out a survey and it's a did you enjoy it? Yes, no, and it's a bit of you know quant data that we sort of benchmark and track. I think this is really deeply understanding the needs of our employees and and doing that on a regular basis because the context around us is changing and our experiences at work change as a result of the context around us. You know, my experience 10 years ago in the workplace is very different to now with two kids aged, you know, six and under. So I think that's the reality is understanding the context changes. And so having to engage with your people just becomes a priority for you. Hey, let's shift to another change now, which is, of course, the change back. Certainly parts of the country, people are returning to offices. In Melbourne, there's a, a gradual a gradual return, 25%, 50%, those sorts of things. Certainly this is a new change again, a kind of, I guess, a hybrid model was the way you described it to me of having some people on site and some people not. I wonder if you could talk maybe a bit about how that's a different thing again and what the experience is of running a, a hybrid workplace with some people there physically, some virtually, and, and maybe... Let's have a conversation about some of the some of the challenges that throws up as well. Yeah, I think when we talk about hybrid, we really are still talking about a, a corporate or an office based workforce. I think that's important to acknowledge, and the reason it's important to acknowledge that is that if you do have a part of your workforce that isn't office based, please don't overlook them. So even if you have seventy or eighty percent office based, and you know twenty to thirty percent who work in a distribution center a warehouse, a delivery role, please consider them in your way forward because they are often overlooked. And I think there's an assumption that that job can't be done differently or can't be done more flexibly. And I'm here to help. It absolutely can be done more flexibly. It may may have limitations, but there is definitely opportunity. So I think that's the first thing to call out. The hybrid model really talks about what we're seeing from many of the large employers and medium-sized employers in Australia, which is Moving forward, they will have a combination of work from home and office-based working with this sort of ratio of sort of 60% either home or office coming up. So it's sort of a, you know, almost like a half and half. You do half your time at home, half your time in the office. So I think that the reason that they are shifting towards that is, A, they've listened to their people and the majority of people want a blend moving forward. I think any survey that you look at, it's somewhere between 70 and 80% of people surveyed who have worked through this period has said they want to retain the option of working from home and the office. So that and 
is really present for them. So organizations are responding by saying, well, we will give you that choice and we will operate on a hybrid model. I think that that is generally a really positive move. I think that some things to pay attention to are really inclusive leadership behaviors. So what I mean by that are, you know, when when we start to have, say, you know, 70% of the people in the meeting back in the office and the minority are on the phone, it doesn't even always have to be a minority, to be honest, but the dominance of the physical space sometimes does take over. So what you have to do is be really deliberate in how you create meetings and how you create forum and think about what is the experience of people who may be in a different place to those who are physically in the room because some of those default behaviors can creep back in such as you know not being able to see when someone wants to interject as we've all been on zoom kind of waving at the screens and figuring out our own little signals in this new way but in the in the physical space of course we're more used to seeing more of the senses and the in the body language and that sort of thing so I think we just have to avoid this sort of physically present dominating the virtual presence and we do that by being deliberate in how we set up the intention of these meetings and how we run them and the behaviors that we're really expecting throughout those meetings from everyone in the room and how we call them out and readjust as we go as well I think you know the other thing I've been having conversations with some clients about is you know do we have a one person on Zoom, everyone on Zoom approach. So do we introduce some new principles that do counteract that issue that I talked about previously? So if there's three people in the office and three at home, the three people in the office don't just go and grab a meeting room. They all are at different points of the office and you're all on Zoom, although you are just in closer proximity to one another. You can still grab a coffee after the meeting and enjoy that social interaction or maybe that incidental collaboration that happens when you are physically present and it does allow for that but of course when we have meetings and forums we want to avoid people being left out and left behind and yeah I just think it really puts a spotlight on the leadership requirements to lead hybrid teams and so thinking about what is the capability and skill set required for leaders to lead hybrid teams where they might have a team of 10, two in the office, five at home, some on leave, it can also present some new leadership challenges. So really figuring out what are the expectations of leaders? How do we recruit for them? How do we develop them? And how do we really reward and recognize them as well? Thinking about the life cycle that we have. There's a a common theme in this conversation, which is is about adaptability and responsiveness to changes i wonder if the kind of ultimate message for people coming back is to to be cognizant and aware of of this is a different world and it's not snapping back to the same old habits that we had before we had this experiment but actually this is a new world again and being aware of the differences being aware of yeah not falling back into those habits but continuing to learn the ways you learn to interact during this period yeah that's right even simple questions like reminding ourselves you know well what is the what is the purpose of this meeting or this forum? What is the purpose of it? And what are we trying to get to here? And, you know, what do we need to pay attention to given we are all at different spaces and just calling that out. You don't need to solve for it yourself as a leader. You can just say, oh, hold on. We're all in different spaces. Let's just think think about what do we need to pay attention to for the next hour so that we, we, all our voices can be heard. Let's just implement a couple of kind of key practices in this meeting so that we're all enjoying this space and it's productive for us all. I want to make sure we had some time to ask you about Minus 18, um, the organisation you're a board member of and closely connected to. 
obviously this has been an extraordinary time for service delivery organizations like Minus 18, if that's the right language, particularly an organization with yours where creating spaces has, is such a big part of it. Tell us a little bit about Minus 18's experience of this and, and what, what you're learning through that lens as well. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for giving us the time to just talk about this for a second, because I think it's there are some really important lessons in the last 10 months from Minus 18. So we are Australia's charity improving the lives of LGBTQIA plus young people. And we do this through kind of three things. So life affirming social inclusion is one through education and advocacy, and also through youth empowerment. And I think one of the the first things I wanted to call out here, which the team did back in March last year, was to first and foremost engage young people and understand how they were feeling and what they were thinking and what were some of their needs and expectations and experiences. And I know that Liana in the last podcast talked about that in her context and how important it was. So I want to just reiterate that point is that no matter what line of business you're in, no matter what area of service delivery or no matter who it is that you're serving, paying attention to where your audience are at and actually listening to them because they do have the best views and they will shape your direction. So they engaged actually back at that point, which is when we were quite digital already was around 250 young people in a listening and consultation exercise and that really did help inform the direction moving forward so really with minus 18 so much of our work has been on physical events so the question then becomes how do you replicate an opportunity to create safe and inclusive spaces for young people when you don't have access to the physical space in the ways that you used to but the team were fantastic and they actually changed the approach to digital events and for the first time they were actually able to engage a number of young people from Western Australia, Tasmania and Queensland which we hadn't really been able to do with the focus on just physical events before. So that was amazing and some of the stats coming up recently were that 34% of youth living 50 kilometers away from their nearest city actually joined some of our events so we were able to access people who would have been limited by the physical location of some of our events before and in fact almost 50 percent of young people were attending their first minus 18 event ever and that was through a digital event so I think what became really apparent for us was that the opportunity for digital events is really going to be an ongoing offering from Minus 18 moving forward because what it allows us to do is engage young people in regional and remote areas in different ways and without the limitations of, you know, trying to recreate a queer formal in every single regional and rural area, which isn't really physically possible from a cost basis for us. So I think that was a really good lesson and learning for us. And also just with the digital events, I think one of the other surprises, well, for me anyway, perhaps our wonderful young team would have realized this because they're much smarter than me, but I think the opportunity to use that content once it's recorded in a respectful and clear way with consent and and so on, but to use that recording and create more stretch from that event by showing the the recordings. So we had almost 6,000 people physically show up in real time to those digital events But we also had almost 6,000 people, just over 6,000 people watch the recordings after. So we were also attracting new, unique users to our events by them just watching the streamings of some of their favourite artists and performers um, and some of the other young people seeing them dancing and commenting and just feeling that that real sense of inclusion through watching a pre-recorded 
event or an event that you know had happened previously so i think that's another benefit to digital extraordinarily positive too isn't it i mean especially that reach into rural and, and regional people who yeah often miss out when it comes to the physical I find that fascinating too, how how many people engage for the first time. I know some of the, well, particularly some of our previous guests have talked about some of the challenges for people engaging for the first time online. And sometimes people are more comfortable when it's the second time or also, but they're real, I suppose there is also a, a really safe way of trying something out when you're doing it from your, your office or whatever. It lowers barriers in a way as well. It mm. may create more for some, but also lowers some for others. It sounds like that's what you were learning. Yeah. And, and I know that there will be some, you know, potentially some vulnerability and anxiety associated with attending your first digital event. And I think comparing, you know, the, the entry point for online with us compared to maybe other examples that have been talked about in past podcasts is that, you know, with our events, you can be quite relatively sort of passive and, and you can watch and you can, you know, you can observe for your first time. And I think it's it's a bit different to perhaps say accessing counselling for yourself where you have to be truly active and, and perhaps present in that conversation. So I think that, you know, if we look at youth broadly and we think about if they've started to access online activities through things like the minus 18 digital events, then perhaps when it comes to needing something like a one-on-one counselling they're a bit more familiar with the digital experience in that sense. And it's not the same, but hopefully these things all can work in harmony with each other. Maybe I have a positivity bias, but, um, you know, that's something that I think is a potential when we look at the collaboration, again, that Liana talked about in the last podcast, is how can we share our learnings, particularly in a youth sector perspective, to understand what's worked for us. And we've actually put a huge amount of, our insights and lessons into our annual report, which is available on minus18.org.au website. So I just encourage anyone who's in the youth space or looking at digital events, digital engagement to head on, have a look at that and shameless plug also to look at how they can support the work of Minus18, which is a a non-profit charity moving forward. No shame in that plug uh, whatsoever. (laughs) I think it's broader than that, to be honest. I think there are many organisations that could really learn from that by giving the people they want to serve the opportunity to passively observe what they do before they perhaps step up their engagement. That's something that I imagine has got potential in lots of different spaces. We're rapidly running out of time, but uh, maybe just as a way to finish, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. I wonder just one way of wrapping up is to ask you, what are your hopes going forward as we emerge from this pandemic into a, a new normal? What's something that you would hope we have that we take into the future? Oh, I'm going to try and make this very succinct into a few points. I think the first one to summarise a lot of our discussion today is to think about flexibility as a, a best fit solution for your strategy, not just as an employee perk. So I think that is, is one of my hopes moving forward is that it will be elevated as a strategic conversation. I think the next one is really that thread that we've talked about, which is to have an ongoing strategy to listen to your audience and to let them guide your way. There is so much changing around the lives of individuals communities and groups that we we can't make any assumptions and the best way that we can avoid assumptions is to have a continual listening strategy and to act upon those insights so I think that's the next one I think also the the third point is really around you know looking at the difference between equality and equity you know where do we need to give everyone the same thing and where do we actually need to understand what the needs of the individual is and how do we provide choice and control to employees in a way that helps us be more equitable in the way that we design workplaces, not just equal. 
And I think just the final point is, you know, one of the hopes I have is that we just pause and take a breath and consider some of the perhaps unintended consequences or inequities with the way that we build or redesign the workplace moving forward. So I think we can assume flexible working is great for everyone, but there can be some unintended inequities that do emerge from having new ways of working. Things like the way we identify potential talent, there could be bias that crops in that if someone does come into the office more than another person, perhaps we see their talent in a different way and we're more likely to sponsor them for a promotion or give them that next project. So we do just need to pay attention to where some of these unintended inequities and consequences do emerge and really just adapt and call them out when they're happening, which requires us to be quite present and quite vulnerable and some of those skill sets that we we talked about previously in terms of inclusive leadership. So I think just to summarize, they're probably my my hopes in terms of the future. And yeah, and on the minus 18 front, really just, I think one of my hopes is that young people have ongoing access to safe spaces, whether that be physical or digital, so that they can, you know, live their best lives. And, and that's what we're here to do. So it's one of my final hopes. Our guest today has been Gemma Saunders from Workplace Edit. Gemma, thanks so much for being part of this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it.